again. Ah, every time, finally going to sleep. Welcome back to another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. This is a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated, which provides management, publicity, and related services. The show website is nhte.net and has lots from all episodes, plus links to social media and podcast listening platforms. Do be sure that you have also signed up there for the weekly e-newsletter. If you've been listening regularly, you know that the newsletter recently underwent a complete overhaul with the redesign rolled out in mid-May. So be sure that you're on the list so you can see the brand new look of that, as well as, of course, all the content published in there every Wednesday. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Scottsdale, Arizona, my guest is a composer, artist, and producer who does work with video game and media-slash-entertainment companies. He has released dozens of albums of original production library music that have seen tens of thousands of placements since 2009. He's a regular music contributor for the CBS television show Let's Make a Deal, and last year was commissioned by the Marquee Sports Network to compose, arrange, and record the official theme for the Chicago Cubs. His YouTube channel has over 8,800 subscribers and a combined total of more than three-quarters of a million video views. You've been hearing a song of his called Ghost in the Keys. It's my pleasure to welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Steve Wimet. Hey, Bruce. How you doing? Great, Steve. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Steve, lots of cool stuff to talk about with you, but before we get away from it, share with the audience about the song that we were just playing of yours called Ghost in the Keys. Yeah, that was actually a track that I wrote for Ubisoft's Just Dance a few years back. Um, we had uh, I've been working with them for about the last 11 years, and every year they come up with something interesting as far as... Um, original music that they like in the game. I do a lot of covers for the game, uh, re-records, they call them. And uh, in this particular case, they said, hey, we want to do a track about a haunted piano. And it needs to be a danceable track. And we want it to be sort of a hip-hop slash honky-tonk piano combination, <laughs> which which is interesting because they always come up with the craziest ideas. So uh, I, I wrote that one and... Um, just add a great group of people to work with for doing the all the different vocals and uh, I did some of the vocals on it and really it turned out great that's one of my favorite tracks that I've done for the game mm. uh, at least on the original music side um, totally different than what I would normally write being sort of having my roots as a rock guitar player but um, always a challenge <laughs> so I'm interested when you described the setup that they gave to you, this is what we're looking for, the style of the song, what kind of a sound we want you to come up with for us. Yeah. Is that very difficult? Is it no, the opposite, Bruce? It makes it real easy? Because I'm comparing it to, say, a songwriter in Nashville who sits down and has someone else in the room and says, you know, I kind of got this idea, and they kind of explain what the song is going to be about, but it's a lot more traditional. It's, you know, oh, this guy just broke up with his girl, and she doesn't think it's over. and he, So in that case, yeah. I feel like that's much different from what you're describing, but maybe you're here to tell me, no, it's actually the same. 
Uh, and like I said before, is it easier or more difficult when they kind of hit you with these kind of, I don't know if they're melody concepts or, or how you would describe it, but take over here. I'm really curious to know how you feel about all this. Yeah. Well, I think that it's it's one of those things where the the better the creative director or the, the music supervisor uh, is, the easier my job is. And in this case, I work, uh, I work a lot with... Uh, Manu Bechet at Ubisoft, and he had a, a pretty a pretty solid brief for it. It was uh, probably a couple of pages word document. Usually, he'll have everything from maybe a screenshot uh, of the dancers. In this case, I actually saw some of the video ahead of time, uh. so I could kind of get an idea of the characters. And we had actually worked on a game prior that uh, was never released and he brought back one of the uh, piano parts that I had written and said what if we took something like this and turned it into a hip-hop track and that's where you know that's where it all kind of took off from so they had a pretty good idea of what they were looking for and that makes my job easier the more information they can give me obviously you know the more I can meet their requirements and it's a little bit different than writing an original song for say myself for an album of my own because i'm writing for a particular medium and i knew that i needed to make it danceable it had to have sort of clever lyrics and and a hook um and you have to keep everything sort of on the beat for eight bars at a time because you're you're working choreography out over that so Uh. I think that it's actually easier for me. Uh, like I said, the more information they give me, uh, the better for something like that. It's a lot easier than just having an idea and saying, hey, I want to write a song. Okay. okay. Where it could go anywhere. And you started to touch on something there that I'm glad that you addressed, which was I was going to follow up and say, are they giving you generalities such as mid-tempo, up-tempo, and it's kind of up to you to decide? Oh, yeah. But when you said... You know, sometimes it's the choreography, it's eight bars. That kind of gives me a little bit clearer look at... And it sounds like these people, at least in this instance, are very thorough in giving you really good details that, like you said, makes your job easier. Yeah, I would say, especially uh, companies like Ubisoft and Activision that I've worked with, for the, for the most part, I've worked with those two companies the most. Uh, in a really, really high quality of of a team and big teams, but I, uh, also have really good relationships. These are my friends that I've worked with for the last 10, 15 years. Mm. And, uh, and so they'll come in and say, Hey, we need this to be at 126 beats per minute. We want it in this key. Wow. wow. Uh, yeah. so again, it, it just makes it easier for me. Um, no doubt. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Before we move on, let me address something a little troubling. My mother said that a travel agent told her that no one will be looking to go to Las Vegas and that this agent supposedly heard from one or two clients that came back from there unhappy. She then proceeded to sell my mother on the Dominican Republic as a travel destination. Hmm. Can you say commission? (laughs) I know for a fact that travel to Las Vegas is absolutely booming again. I have read it in multiple reputable publications with my own two eyes. You see, this episode is coming out on what will be my first full day in Las Vegas. I'm very ready for the trip, not only in the getaway sense, but in the being well-informed sense. 
I've been like a sponge reading all kinds of information in the Access Vegas newsletter and being active in the private Facebook group that they offer to subscribers. When you subscribe, you get insider tips via the Access Vegas newsletter that comes to your email inbox, and you get access to that private Facebook group, as well as access to their 12 special reports. Access Vegas has been online continuously since 1997, and their editor has been quoted regularly in both local and national media. So, to both save money and maximize your time there, read the Access Vegas newsletter. On my show website, nhte.net, you will see their logo. Click or tap on that, and when you go to their sign-up page, put in the code BRUCE to get $5 off. Thanks to Access Vegas, I even read about a music legend who's coming out of retirement to start performing at a hotel there again. And I just read yesterday about a rock legend who is moving to Las Vegas to live. Again, go to my show website, nhte.net, use the Access Vegas logo, and go sign up, putting in the code BRUCE to get $5 off. Steve, before we start getting into a lot of these different projects that you have been and are still involved with, I want to establish first for the audience the old been there, done that. Let's talk about your beginnings, meaning what got you into music and when. Um, it was probably uh, when I was about six years old, my sister got a guitar from the girl who lived next door, and she never played it, and it was always just sitting around the house, and little by little, I'd you know, sneak it out of the closet and try it out uh and of course get in trouble because i was playing with my sister's stuff. <laughs> and uh <laughs> um it wasn't until i got into music right around when i was seven we moved to california when i was seven and uh, my next door neighbor got me into kiss and i think a lot of kids growing up that my age that was it was kind of one way or the other so i was a big fan uh, as a seven-year-old, as much as a seven-year-old can be a big fan, <laughs> and so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be a drummer, and uh, so I got a paper route, I got a drum set, and I was terrible. I felt, like, you know, full-on Bobby Brady, just limbs flailing all over the place, and um, and then the fact that my folks were just, why did we ever let this guy get drums? Because it's the, the most annoyingly loud instrument for anyone to learn. So. Um, as I had my next door neighbor come over, he was also taking guitar lessons and we switched one night. Um, his, his grandfather was a guy that used to tour with, um, Buddy Rich and mm. he would record all of Buddy Rich's concerts. Wow. So he'd give my friend drum lessons here and there, just little lessons. And he immediately was a thousand times better than me. But <laughs> that night was when I figured out that the guitar actually did feel right to me. And so mm. I kind of went on from there you know, I got lessons, which was something that my folks said, Hey, if you're going to do this, we want to make sure you have lessons, which is really cool. Um, and I had a great guitar teacher all the way up until, uh, until college. And that's actually what I did. I got my degree in classical uh, performance and composition. So I went through all of that as well. So yeah. I was schooled. I was going to say all of that is a great look at the foundation for how you got started into music. I was going to ask you, what about schooling? Yeah, um, I went to Cal State. They call it Cal State East Bay now, but at the time it was just Cal State Hayward. Um, I had planned on going to uh, MI, the Musicians Institute down in L.A. Uh, they had GIT, uh, the Guitar Institute, and it was mostly for what we used to call shredders, guitar players that were 
working to play really fast and it was kind of the thing in the late eighties. And, uh, my folks were sort of against that. They said, once you get a real education rather than just a specific, uh, you know, specific rock education. And I think they were right. Uh, so I, I did, I did that. And I went to, I got my, my bachelor's degree in classical guitar. Um, Mm. And then actually, uh, about the same time I was doing that, I was really kind of split. Uh, classical music was great, um, but I wanted to rock. I'm a kid. <laughs> and um, and I had big plans. I was planning to be, you know, I want to be a rock star. Like most those guys growing up in my group of friends, that's what we wanted to be. And right around the time I was midway through college, uh, I started going to uh, recording studios. And in fact, I met up with uh, a great, still great producer named Eric Valentine, who was running a, a small studio in Palo Alto. And uh, a friend of uh, a friend of mine and I were recording demos there. And that actually led to me uh, joining the band that Eric was in at the time called T-Ride. And we did a record and was on Hollywood Records, and Bill Graham was the manager, and it was going to be a big deal. Um, things didn't work out for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they went on tour, and I went into uh, the computer business. I had made a reference to Been There, Done That. Share with the audience what your original goals were, music-wise. Yeah, I think that originally, growing up when I did the idea was most of my friends that uh, were involved in music it was to get signed to be to be a musician on the road rock star make records um, and I think that was probably from my early days because that's sort of what we saw I would go to concerts I'd see I'd see bands and that's what I wanted to do so I would spend my time practicing guitar in you know in anticipation of joining a band at some point getting signed, writing records, touring, that sort of thing. That was the original intent, for sure. Okay, okay. Well, as we all know, just because we make certain plans or set certain goals, it doesn't mean that it always turns out (laughs) the way we intended. In your case, there was a detour. Yeah, um, it was interesting because I was working at uh, at that goal, and I was, uh, this was around when I was probably about 19, uh, there was a write-up that they did for me in Guitar Player Magazine. Mike Varney had a column called Spotlight, and he would sort of do a little column on uh, three different guitarists every month, writing up on the demo tapes that they sent. And that got me into working with a, a singer, and we were recording demos at the studio. And it felt like I was going in the right trajectory. Uh, I ended up getting signed uh, to Hollywood Records for a brief period of time, and I was working with a band called T-Ride. And right around the time that uh, the T-Ride record came out, uh, I wasn't in the band anymore at that point, but this is when the whole world sort of took a shift. Uh, this record came out right around the same time as Nirvana's Nevermind. Mm. And that was a huge cultural musical shift. And what we had been doing was wasn't really it wasn't in the nirvana spirit that's for sure and and what was happening with the the seattle scene so after that happened you know things changed pretty drastically in fact that was a time when it was really almost embarrassing to think of yourself as a proficient guitar player if you can believe that Hmm. um 
talent and technique were kind of not looked at the same way, being a hot shot gunslinger guitar player thing had changed into, uh, you know, a much more, it was kind of like the second birth, uh, rebirth of punk rock when I think of it with uh, stripping music down and, um, and that was great and it needed to happen, I think. But what happened in that case for me is that I said, well, I'm going to have to make a living somehow, and it's certainly not going to be doing what I uh, originally intended. Yeah. So my detour was uh, switching into the computer business. Um, this was pre-internet by just a couple of years, and I got into what was the sound card business. And, you know, this was early on when the PC had a little speaker and it made, made beeps and whatnot, but it wasn't really <laughs> making any sound. And there was a company called Creative Labs that made a sound card called the Sound Blaster, and it was sort of the sort of a standard. And uh, I actually lived about 20, 25 miles away from Creative Labs, and a friend of mine worked there, and he said, you should come in and uh, work in tech support as a, as a MIDI tech support uh, guy. And MIDI was something that I knew very well, musical instrument digital interface. It was a way of communicating um uh, notes through keyboards um, using a special cable, and it went on to a you know it's it still happens today and we all use it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that detour took me into the the computer business, and it got farther and farther away from music. It started out that I was working with audio, and then pretty soon I was working with video, and then I was working with the internet, and. Wow. Wow. I just kept, you know, I just kept on going and, you know, the dot-com business was rolling. And during that time, I moved up to, to uh, Seattle from the Bay Area. Wow. And I worked at Microsoft on site for five years. Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> yeah, it was a complete shift. Yeah, for sure. But you did, however, get back on track. Talk about what that consisted of. Yeah, it actually ended uh, right around uh, the early 2000s. I was working for a company that, that uh, I was writing ringtones for, believe it or not, wow. when they, those were a thing. <laughs> and our company got bought out by AOL, and they laid everybody off. <laughs> mm. And so here I am now in Scottsdale, Arizona, working remotely for a company, and they said, hey, uh, we're not going to need you anymore because AOL is just going to take that. Uh, remember that company, AOL? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, they were going to take the technology and, and use it for whatever they were going to use it for. So I had a four-month severance package, and I had, you know, I had dodged layoffs and reductions in forces in the tech business for about 12 years. And all the while, I had stayed in contact with all of the people who made video games for computers because that was a huge part of my deal, was working with these people uh, as sort of as a liaison, not as a composer. And when that layoff happened, my wife said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I'm totally done being in this tech business for what I've been doing. I want to get back to doing this full time. Uh. And, you know, all the while, I had been, I'd had a, a studio at the house, uh, and uh, I had been writing music. I never stopped. Oh, okay. But that was the big change. Yeah, that okay. was the big turning point. Yeah. By the way, this is rather self-serving, but I want to jump in here and tell for those of you that don't know America Online, AOL, or maybe all you know <laughs> is the You've Got Mail. There is a episode of Crank Anchors out there. For those of you who are familiar with Crank Anchors on Comedy Central, and the character who did that 
you've got male bit is special ed, which was voiced by Jim Florentine, who was the guest on episode 200 of this podcast. And so you see how we bring that all full circle. (laughs) I love Jim Florentine. I didn't know he was the voice of that. Yeah, he does special ed. Uh, Still to this day, they resurrected Crank Anchors maybe about a year ago. And so all new episodes with with Jim. In fact, uh, he was just here about a month ago at one of the comedy clubs in Tampa. So I went to see him and we got to reconnect because we had done that podcast interview face-to-face when he was here doing a stand-up show in Tampa a few years ago. So it was good to see him again. And, And I do listen to his podcast, so we've got that in common too. So there you were saying, yeah. yes, I'm I'm done with, with what I've been doing. I've got this home studio. I'm still writing and playing music at home. So what was next? Uh, next was uh, about a year and a half of trying. Um, I, uh, I had some small contracts. I was doing some work for a company at the time called Digital Chocolate. Now, you have to keep in mind, right around this time was just before the iPhone was re- released. So okay. smartphones were really uh, scattered. There was no predominant technology. you know. So even just the idea of texting was really strange. Uh, and games were, you'd have to work for, you'd have to work to make them work on every single different phone. It was really, really painful. Mm. So I did some consulting for about a year and a half. And then a friend of mine from Microsoft, uh, Ty Graham, uh, said, you know, are you going to be out at uh, GDC, which is the Game Developers Conference? And I went every year. It's out in San Francisco. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I want to go this year because, uh, you know, this is my focus is getting back into the video game side. Well, he introduced me to Kai Huang, who was president of Red Octane. And this is this is a really fun fact here. Red Octane was acquired by Activision they had come up with a, uh, a guitar-based game called Guitar Hero, and they had already released Guitar Hero 1 and 2, which were um, the, entire, the entirety of those games were based on uh, cover songs of, you know, great rock songs that you would Guitar Hero do. Yeah. Well, I was at the show. He introduced me to Kai, and I thought maybe they were looking for what were called note trackers, guys that could take the notes and convert them into the the fallen, you know, uh, gems that would fall down from the screen that you would track on the guitar controller. And I kind of I thought maybe that would be a fun thing to do. But he actually said something different. He just out of the blue said, hey, have you ever done any covers? And hmm. Of course, I I lied immediately and said, yeah, all the time. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, I'm a hustler. (laughs) Um, I had actually just finished a stint doing a 70s tribute band, and I had learned all of these songs. We were doing a really fun thing called, yeah, it was really fun. Um, And we had done about two years of this, and so it it was the full deal, and I had gone really deep into learning all of these classic rock songs. And so it was perfect timing. And how? And... Yeah, I mean, it couldn't have been better. And I had no idea that Guitar Hero 3 itself would go on to be one of the the highest grossing video games of all time. So my first video game out of the gate ended up being Guitar Hero 3. Mm. Um, and I did nine songs for the game. Wow. My demo, that they, they wanted me to demo something. And I said, uh, well, what, what can I pick from? And they said, you can either do Schools Out by Alice Cooper or you can do uh, White Room by uh, Cream. So I picked schools out. 
And uh, we recorded the whole thing over at the studio uh, about two miles from my house with mm. a, a buddy of mine, Ryan Green, and got the gig. Amazing. And it was because, yeah, it was just, and it was, it couldn't have been better timing. It sounds like it. That's what I thought when you said that he asked you, have you done covers before? And you tell us that here you were having just finished up this two-year stint doing what you were doing. And yeah. listeners, as you're hearing, this episode of Now Hear This Entertainment is a real eye-opener as to other potential work as a musician rather than solely thinking of the traditional recording and touring approach. You heard Steve say he had that vision when he was young like so many others do. In fact, there's some other really cool opportunities out there that I want all of you to hear about. But first, before we continue, I'm joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Scottsdale, Arizona, by composer, artist, and producer Steve Wimette. Visit his official website at stevewimet.com. I will have a link to it from the show page for this episode at nhte.net. He does have music streaming on Spotify. There is a logo to link over to that on his website, so do follow him on that platform to hear his music. Steve is also on Instagram, so be sure to follow him on there as well. Again, there's a link for that on stevewimet.com, and it's right next to the YouTube icon. Wow. Go subscribe to his channel, as I mentioned in the intro, currently at more than 8,800 subscribers and obviously some content that's drawing lots and lots of eyeballs to the tune of over three quarters of a million combined video views. Incidentally, if you haven't noticed, there seems to be a trend in the podcasting world of using the word follow, moving away from the word subscribe so as not to imply cost. Some of you might have come to this episode of Now Hear This Entertainment specifically just to hear Steve. Thank you, but I hope you and even other listeners who are new will check out other episodes of my show, and of course, that you'll hit the subscribe or the follow button wherever you regularly listen to podcasts. There have been a lot of great guests over the last seven plus years, so do check out some of the 380 plus episodes that have preceded this one, and stay with me for a new episode every Wednesday. Steve, let's continue on. I'm really interested to hear you talk about composing for video games and TV. Well, um, the Guitar Hero thing was just uh, an amazing launch pad for me. Um, never would I have had the career I've had if it weren't for that game because the visibility was just so high. Uh, and that, you know, it opened a lot of doors. When when you have a game that's, that's sold as many as they have and... Uh, I actually ended up working on every version of the game until it concluded in 2010. Wow. Um, so I think it went all the way through Guitar Hero 6, and then there were all sorts of offshoots like Guitar Hero Metallica and Guitar Hero Aerosmith. And actually on my YouTube channel, I have a whole story uh, about all of those, which uh, actually it's kind of a fun story, but I won't go into <laughs> it now. Um Moving on from the guitar side of things, I mean, you know, growing up as a guitar player, uh, that was that was something that was a shock that the video game, you know, video games were traditionally more orchestrated. Um, but I had found that there are a lot of places in video games that aren't your traditional orchestra scores. Uh, and uh, that helped me get into, uh, I worked on a game called Rock Revolution, which again was uh, sort of a competitor to Guitar Hero from a company called Konami, mm. and I did 55 covers in six months, which wow. almost killed me. <laughs> wow. That was a tough one. This this reminds me of when you're a kid and you're watching cartoons, and they say from the car radio, 
55 in six months, and then the person driving the car says, did he say 55 in six months? And the person on the radio says, that's right, he said 55 in six months. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there wasn't a lot of sleep that happened there. Um, But what was interesting is it sort of opened my mind to, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't want to just be a guitar composer. And this is where it got really interesting. Right around uh, 2011, uh, the Ubisoft guys, I had been in touch with them since around t- 2007, but nothing had really opened up yet. And they have a game called Just Dance. And Just Dance is, uh, it's kind of like the guitar hero of dance games. If you think about it, you're following dance moves on the screen, and they have everything from modern dance to classic tracks from the 40s and and beyond. And I had the opportunity to start working on covers that had not to do with guitar. So I was producing songs that were originals as well as covers. So composing wise, I'm kind of all over the map. I'm, mm. I'm not John Williams and I've never uh, been in the Hans Zimmer group. There are people that do that school, you know, to, to a degree that I'll never, I, I, that's just not my thing. I'm kind of the eclectic guy. So they come to me when they need something that's a little bit off center. <laughs> and um, so I've done everything from carnival style uh, music to Balkan gypsy music to um, jam bands, um, wow. uh, Irish music. Wow. Uh, it, it goes, it goes all over the world music. It's, it's really fun. And, and just dance has been a really amazing platform for that. And it's been 11 years that I've worked on that game. Well, yeah, and this is a good opportunity for the audience to understand. Again, as I mentioned a little bit ago, those of you who are up-and-comers that are aspiring performers that are only seeing kind of the traditional route, you're hearing what other jobs there are out there in the world that you can still do music full-time. And in your case, it's kind of fun to say they come to me when they need something a little bit offbeat because... Now you've kind of established yourself as an expert in that area. You've found your niche. Yeah. It's just like someone saying, well, this is what I do when I'm on stage, or this is the kind of music that I put out. In your case, it's this is what I'm doing specifically for the video game world. Yeah. And I know you've got a lot that you can share about production music, too. Will you share that with the audience as well? Yeah, I got into production music around 2009. Uh, my uh, my agent at the time was uh, good friends with Adam Taylor from APM Music. And uh, I had a conversation at a dinner one time with Adam, and he said, hey, would you ever consider writing production library music? And I, to be honest with you, I didn't really know anything about it. And I said, well, any opportunity sounds like fun because I'm still, you know, sort of learning my way through this and uh, it ended up being uh, kind of like working for video games in the sense that they would give you a a brief uh, you know this particular album is going to be based on sports uh, let's say sports rock or this one's going to be orchestral hybrid music with with uh, with guitars or something like that and so I got into it um, that way and I, I wrote a uh, a few tracks for uh, I think it was called Sports Night was the first album that I wrote for on a label uh, called Endgame, uh, which was distributed through APM. And little by little, uh, you know, they would ask me if I want to write more, and we built up a really good relationship. And I ended up doing 
uh, I don't know, it's been dozens of albums with APM and now wow. uh, with others like X-Ray Dog and BMG and uh, Position Music and some others, um, and now Pop Machine. And it's, um, it's interesting writing music for television, especially it's mostly underscore. If you think about it, you're, you're sort of setting a tone. Yeah. These aren't songs. You're not really writing a song as much as you're trying to write something that's going to underscore um, action in anticipation of them picking it. Because a lot of times this music is not paid for in advance. In fact, none of it is. This is for licensing. So you have to kind of get into the idea of watching, you know, I watch a lot of TV to see how music that is not specifically composed for a television show, how is music utilized? And, uh, and I've used that uh, to great effect over the years by catching where my music has been placed and then writing more music that might be in that vein. So you're almost kind of taking a, taking a stab in the dark or an educated guess on what might be used for a particular type of show. And then you write an album's worth of music, which is usually 12 tracks. Mm -hmm. um, and then you put it out there and you hope that they will license it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's an interesting, it's an interesting business because you might write it for nothing. Yeah. Well, there's something that you said a few minutes ago that I want to go back to because there's a potential teaching moment yeah. here for the aspiring performers who are listening. You talked about someone asking you, and, and I, want to, I want to know, was this your agent or was it, I guess you might say the client, about have you ever considered getting into production music? And you said to me, I didn't really know what it was at the time. So my question to you is, did you say that to your agent or was it, no, Bruce, this wasn't my agent who asked me the question, so I had to fake it till, you know, because there's the expression, fake it till you make it. And, I, and my question is, what advice do you have for those who are listening that all of a sudden are going to get themselves in a situation where someone's going to ask a question like that? And it doesn't necessarily have to be production music, but someone's going to say, hey, Jim, have you ever played this style of music before? And they haven't. Is it always say yes and then just learn it later? Or is it you really got to kind of be careful because all of a sudden, if it's, you know, yeah. be there tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., then you're going to be stuck. Now, that's a slippery slope. Uh, it was not my agent. Uh, my agent introduced me uh, to Adam Taylor, the president of APM. Okay. And Adam asked me that question, and I didn't know the answer. Uh, I mean, well, I didn't have any experience, so I just was honest, and I asked, well, what does it entail? And I think that that was the beginning of a really a great, long-standing relationship is uh, probably due to the fact that uh, you know I wasn't trying to pull the wool over his eyes on anything because you know he he's in this business he picked pretty much figured it out now i get, it kind of sounds contrary to what i did with guitar hero but not really because i had just come out of two years of of doing that kind of thing and i had been a studio guy for 20 years at this right. point so that was not out of the question it was just a matter of resources um i i think that um anybody who wants to get involved in something like that uh we have the internet and, and there's so much information available and not, not a ton of misinformation either. There are also organizations like the PMA, the Production Music Association. They have a website you can go to and you can become a member. They have conferences. I go to the conference every year in the fall, not last year, of course. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is, there's a huge demand for this, this kind of production music and it, hmm. it spans 
such a wide variety. It, it's everything that's on the radio now to everything that's ever been recorded and what hasn't been recorded. Wow. There's a need for something. You know, there's a need for a guy that does 70s funk. There's a guy that, you know, there's a need for music that sounds like 80s throwback disco or pop or, uh, or modern anything. So it's a huge industry, and it's everywhere now. It's just getting bigger with streaming. I mean, the the opportunities are endless. You've got everything from Netflix and Amazon and Hulu mm. to cable to, you know, network TV. Yeah, good Massive point. possibilities. Yeah, good point. Yeah. And I think what I'm hearing you say is you do have to kind of consider the specific opportunity that's being put before you. If someone says, hey, do you play steel guitar? If so, tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., I'd love to get you over to such and such a studio. If you're a piano player and you've never yeah. played steel guitar, yeah. you can't lie your way through that one and say, I can learn on YouTube overnight. No. At the same time, I also liked the way you phrased it. I'm always open to new opportunities. So you're not saying that, yes, I do production music, but you're not closing yourself out to where they're going to say, my gosh, I've heard so much about this guy, and he doesn't even know what production music is. Right. So I, I think I'm kind of finding my answer with a little bit of a magnifying glass on, on some of what you're saying. So I, I think that's really helpful. You have done lots and lots and lots of re-records. What's the count up to, and what are some of the more notable re-records that you've done? Uh, yeah, I just clicked 276. Mm. It's, boy, you know, going back over the tracks, I've done I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett, trying to think of some something that uh, I really enjoyed doing uh, Age of Aquarius Let the Sunshine In uh, you know yeah. way back from the 60s yeah we did some songs from Greece um, I did uh, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life by Monty Python um, which was all orchestrated I've done all the Guitar Hero stuff was really fun. That was my early days when it was literally all the rock that I grew up with, things like Rocky Like a Hurricane, um, Talk Dirty to Me from Poison, or Personality Crisis by the New York Dolls. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you to clarify for the audience you know, where these re-records are ending up, why you've done 276 of them, what, what these are for. Well, yeah, I mean, a, a good chunk of them was on Guitar Hero. Uh, a large chunk went in the uh, Rock Revolution game, and then after that, it was uh, for Just Dance. And then the, the other thing that was kind of interesting is because uh, the people that do re-records, uh, you know, it's not really a uh, it's a it's a niche business, right? It's a it's a really small group of people that that do it as as far as professionally, I think. Um, and I got word from Shep. Gordon, uh, Alice Cooper's manager, that Alice had liked the version of uh, Schools Out that I did. And Alice lives in town here in Phoenix. And so they got in touch with me and asked me to work with Alice to, to redo um, Poison, which is a song that he had written with Desmond Child back in 89. So I actually had Alice Cooper over at the house, which is, is a really surreal event. Um, <laughs> I, I was able to work with him the coolest guy you've ever met. Um, I worked with Public Enemy. Um, I worked with The Knack. And those are ones wow. where artists, after 25 years, the rights revert back to them where they can re uh, record their own catalog. That way they can own it to license out for commercials and whatnot. And uh, so I've helped a, a good deal of artists do their own music later on in their careers. Fantastic. Yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. 
Well, I mentioned earlier about plans not going quite how we plan them. Now that you are where you are, what are your goals moving forward? Well, um, recently I joined on uh, as sort of a partner with uh, a company called Pop Machine. And Pop Machine is a production library that uh, that writes or, you know, has you know, many dozens of albums of production library music. And so now I'm, I'm a partner. So I, I work on uh, working with other artists and producing as well as putting together these albums so that they're um, available to the editors, which re- requires a lot of spreadsheets and metadata um, and also mastering. So now I'm, I'm mastering, which is, uh, which is new to me, but um I've been fortunate enough to have my room here at the studio tuned by an amazing engineer named Alex Otto. He built and tuned this room, and it's flat from about 18 hertz up to about 20K. And that's really helped me to uh, put my bionic listening ears on to Mm. help make records, you know, mastered for television, which is a a completely different medium than just on a CD or for the radio. So, Wow. you know, that and making uh, sample libraries, which I've done for the last 10 years with Sample Logic. Uh, I've got a whole series of cinematic guitar libraries and, uh, you know, more music for television and video games. I don't think uh, I'm planning to, to stop that at all. I, I feel like I just got started. <laughs> <Yeah>. Outstanding. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, we're going to close today with another one of Steve's songs, one called They. Steve, before I wrap this up and play that track, share with the listeners about this song, if you would, please. Yeah, they is a. It started out as a demo for a video game that I I didn't get, and it was uh, basically imagine a whole um, five minutes of what would happen when the world turned upside down and uh, zombies were coming out to eat brains <laughs> and uh, the, the process, what might be going through your mind. Uh, I actually ended up turning it into a trailer uh, music track. Um, so it has been licensed. I can't remember what it was licensed for, but yeah, it's, it's probably one of the scarier pieces of music I've written. It's certainly <laughs> not a pop song. <laughs> and that's, that's said in context. That's not uh, a slang kind of reference to scary. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking more of a, of a genre is what I should say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Good stuff. I, I heard so much that we probably could do a whole other episode about and really just dissect some of this. Uh, I imagine that some of this may be on your YouTube channel, though. Yeah. So, listeners, I encourage you again to check out Steve's YouTube channel and, and all that you have on there. Really great conversation, Steve. Thank you so much for being on the show. I, I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate you coming on Now Hear This Entertainment. Oh, thank you so much, Bruce. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely, absolutely. Listeners, that will do it for another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to composer, artist, and producer Steve Wimet. Do visit his official website at stevewimet.com. As I mentioned earlier, I will have a link to his website on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. He does have music streaming on Spotify. There's a logo to link over to that on his website, so do follow him on that platform to hear his music. Steve is also on Instagram, so be sure to follow him on there as well, just as I myself did yesterday. 
Again, there's a link for that on stevewimet.com, and it's right next to the YouTube icon. You heard me say this earlier. Wow. Go subscribe to his channel. It's currently at more than 8,800 subscribers. Let me also repeat that some of you might have come to this episode of Now Hear This Entertainment specifically just to hear Steve, and I thank you for that, but I hope you and even other listeners who are new-ish will check out other episodes of my show, and of course that you'll hit the subscribe or the follow button wherever you regularly listen to podcasts. There have been a lot of great guests over the last seven plus years, so do check out some of the 380 plus episodes that have preceded this one and stay with me for a new episode every Wednesday. For now, that will do it for episode 384. Thanks ever so much for listening. We'll send you out today with another song from Steve Wimet. This is the one he just talked about called They. They.